This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones. They have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included, and there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. A podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep, and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network. I really enjoyed reading the story that I have for you tonight. I think you're really going to like it. And before we get to the story, I just want to thank all of our brand new patrons on Patreon.com, which is where you can go and pledge a couple bucks for an ad-free version of the show. So, this week's patrons, Lorna Rushfell, James Burnett, MD, and MJ. Thank you all so, so much for donating and being a part of making the show. It means so much, and... I really appreciate you. And for anyone who doesn't know, these names that I just read are brand new supporters of Sleepy on Patreon.com, which is a site where you can directly support creators of the work that you like. So, if the Sleepy Podcast has maybe become part of your nightly routine, consider going to Patreon.com slash Sleepy Radio and donating even a dollar a month. Like I said earlier, um, $2 gets you a totally ad-free version of the show, and then $5 a month gets you access to our exclusive poetry feed. But no matter how much you donate, even if it's a dollar, I will read your name in the opening credits of the next show after you do. So again, if you would like to be a part of making this show, go to patreon.com slash sleepyradio. Thank you. And as always, the music you're hearing is by my good friend James Lepkowski, and the cover-up for Sleepy is by Gracie Kanan.
Tonight I have a really, really wonderful sci-fi story for you tonight from one of our favorite authors here on Sleepy, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, author of all the Sherlock Holmes stories. And little did I know that he also wrote a novel that would go on to inspire Jurassic Park. So this really wonderful sci-fi book that he wrote is called The Lost World. Probably sounds familiar. And um, it was published in 1912. The premise is uh, that an explorer has traveled to South America and there's a little part of the world where prehistoric animals have survived. Spoiler alert. Their dinosaurs, and um, this is this is what launched the entire Jurassic Park series, and it was written by the Sherlock Holmes guy. Who'd have thought? Well, anyways, it has um, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's characteristic, wonderful writing that is just a pleasure to read out loud, and um, he's just an incredible storyteller. And I really, really enjoyed reading this one. This is one that I honestly might just continue reading on my own outside of the show. So, enjoy the words that inspired Jurassic Park and everything that came after it in that series. The Lost World by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. And now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Get real comfortable. Close your eyes. And let me read to you. Chapter 1 There are heroisms all around us. Mr. Hungerton, her father, really was the most tactless person upon earth. A fluffy, feathery, untidy cockatoo of a man. Perfectly good-natured, but absolutely centered upon his own silly self. If anything could have driven me from Gladys... It would have been the thought of such a father-in-law. I am convinced that he really believed in his heart that I came round to the chestnuts three days a week for the pleasure of his company, and very especially to hear his views upon bimetallism, a subject upon which he was by way of being an authority. For an hour or more that evening, I listened to his monotonous chirrup about bad money driving out good, the token value of silver, the depreciation of the rupee, and the true standards of exchange. Suppose, he cried with feeble violence, that all the debts in the world were called up simultaneously, and immediate payment insisted upon. What under our present conditions would happen then? 
I gave the self-evident answer that I should be a ruined man, upon which he jumped from his chair, reproved me for my habitual levity, which made it impossible for him to discuss any reasonable subject in my presence, and bounced off out of the room to dress for a Masonic meeting. At last I was alone with Gladys, and the moment of fate had come. All that evening I had felt like the soldier who awaits the signal which will send him on a forlorn hope, hope of victory and fear of repulse alternating in his mind. She sat with that proud, delicate profile of hers outlined against the red curtain. How beautiful she was, and yet, how aloof. We had been friends, quite good friends, but never could I get beyond the same camaraderie which I might have established with one of my fellow reporters upon the Gazette. Perfectly frank, perfectly kindly, and perfectly unsexual. My instincts are all against a woman being too frank and at her ease with me. It is no compliment to a man. Where the real sex feeling begins, timidity and distrust are its companions. Heritage from old wicked days when love and violence went often hand in hand. The bent head, the averted eye, the faltering voice, the wincing figure, these, and not the unshrinking gaze and frank reply, are the true signals of passion. Even in my short life, I had learned as much as that, or had inherited a race memory which we all call instinct. Gladys was full of every womanly quality. Some judged her to be too cold and hard, but such a thought was treason. That delicately bronzed skin that raven hair, the large liquid eyes, the full but exquisite lips, all the stigmata of passion were there. But I was sadly conscious that, up to now, I never found the secret of drawing it forth. However, come what might, I should have done with suspense and bring matters to a head tonight. She could but refuse me, and better be a repulsed lover than an accepted brother. So far my thoughts had carried me, and I was about to break the long and uneasy silence when two critical dark eyes looked round at me, and the proud head was shaking in smiling reproof. I have a presentiment that you are going to propose, Ned. I do wish you wouldn't, but things are so much nicer as they are. I drew my chair a little nearer. Now, how did you know that I was going to propose? I asked in genuine wonder. Don't women always know? Do you suppose any woman in the world was ever taken unawares? But oh, Ned, our friendship has been so good and so pleasant. What a pity to spoil it. Don't you feel how splendid it is when a young man and a young woman should be able to talk face to face as we have talked? I don't know, Gladys. You see, I can talk face to face with... with the old station master. I can't imagine that official came into the matter. 
but in he trotted and set us both laughing. That does not satisfy me in the least. I want my arms around you and your head on my breast. And oh, Gladys, I want. She sprang from her chair as she saw signs that I proposed to demonstrate some of my wants. You spoiled everything, Ned, she said. It's all so beautiful and natural until this kind of thing comes in. It is such a pity. Why can't you control yourself? I didn't invent it, I pleaded. It's nature. It's love. Good Lord, Ned. That's me saying that, Otis. Not Gladys. It is not just nature. You can control yourself. Well, perhaps, if both love, they may be different. I've never felt that. But you must. You, with your beauty, with your soul. Oh, Gladys, you were made for love. You must love. One must wait till it comes. Why can't you love me, Gladys? Is it my appearance, or what? Man, Ned, the insecurities. She did unbend a little. She put forward a hand, such a gracious, stooping attitude it was, and she pressed back my head. Then she looked into my upturned face with a very wistful smile. No, it isn't that, she said at last. You're not a conceited boy by nature, and so I can safely tell you it is not that. It's deeper. My character? She nodded severely. What can I do to mend it? Do not sit down and talk it over. No, really. I won't if you'll only sit down. She looked at me with a wondering distrust, which was much more to my mind than her wholehearted confidence. How primitive and bestial it looks when you put it down in black and white. And perhaps, after all, it is only a feeling peculiar to myself. Anyhow, she sat down. Now tell me what's amiss with me. I'm in love with somebody else, said she. It was my turn to jump out of my chair. It's nobody in particular, she explained laughing at the expression on my face. Only an ideal. I've never met the kind of man, I mean. Tell me about him. What does he look like? Oh, he might look very much like you. How dear of you to say that. Well, what is it that he does that I don't do? Just say the word. Teetotal, vegetarian, aeronaut, theosophist, superman. I'll have to try it, Gladys, if you only give me an idea of what would please you. She laughed at the elasticity of my character. Well, in the first place, I don't think my idea would speak like that, said she. He would be a harder, sterner man, not so ready to adapt himself to a silly girl's whim. But, above all, 
He must be a man who could do, who could act, who could look death in the face and have no fear in him. A man of great deeds and strange experiences. It is never a man that I should love, but always the glories he had won, for they would be reflected upon me. Think of Richard Burton. When I read his wife's life of him, I could so understand her love. And Lady Stanley. Did you ever read the wonderful last chapter of that book about her husband? These are the sort of men that a woman could worship with all her soul, and yet be the greater, not the less, on account of her love, honored by all the world as the inspirer of noble deeds. She looked so beautiful in her enthusiasm that I nearly brought down the whole level of the interview. I gripped myself hard and went on with the argument. We can't all be Stanleys and Burton, said I. Besides, we don't get the chance. At least, I never had the chance. If I did, I should try to take it. But chances are all around you. It is the mark of a kind man. I mean that he makes his own chances. You can't hold him back. I've never met him, and yet I seem to know him so well. There are heroisms all around us waiting to be done. It's for men to do them, and for women to reserve their love as a reward for such men. Look at that young Frenchman who went up last week in a balloon. It was blowing a gale of wind, but because he was announced to go, he insisted on starting. The wind blew him 1,500 miles in 24 hours, and he fell in the middle of Russia. That was the kind of man I mean. Think of the women he loved, and how other women must have envied her. That's what I should like to be, envied for my man. Yikes. I'd have done it to please you, but you shouldn't do it merely to please me. You should do it because you can't help yourself. Because it's natural to you. Because the man in you is crying out for heroic expression. Now, when you describe the Wigan coal explosion last month, could you not have gone down and helped those people in spite of the choke dam? I did. You never said so. There was nothing worth bucking about. I didn't know. She looked at me with rather more interest. That was brave of you. I had to. If you want to write good copy, you must be where the things are. What a prosaic motive. It seems to take all the romance out of it. But still, whatever your motive, I am glad that you went down that mine. She gave me her hand but with such sweetness and dignity that I could only stoop and kiss it. I dare say I am merely a foolish woman with a young girl's fancies. And yet it is so real with me, so entirely part of my very self, that I cannot help acting upon it. If I marry, I do want to marry a famous man. Why should you not? I cried. It is women like you who brace men up 
give me a chance and see if I will take it. Besides, as you say, men ought to make their own chances and not wait until they are given. Look at Clive, just a clerk, but he conquered India. By George, I'll do something in the world yet. She laughed at my sudden Irish effervescence. Why not, she said. You have everything a man could have. You, hell, strength, education, energy. I was sorry you spoke. And now I'm glad, so glad, that if awakens these thoughts in you. And if I do... Her dear hand rested like warm velvet upon my lips. Not another word, sir. You should have been at the office for evening duty half an hour ago. Only I hadn't the heart to remind you. Someday, perhaps, when you have won your place in the world, we shall talk it over again. And so it was that I found myself that foggy November evening pursuing the Camberwell tram with my heart glowing within me and with the eager determination that not another day should elapse before I should find some thee which was worthy of my lady. But who, who in all this wide world could have ever imagined the incredible shape which that deed was to take, or the strange steps by which I was led to the doing of it? And after all, this opening chapter will seem to the reader to have nothing to do with my narrative, and yet there would have never been a narrative without it. For it is only when a man goes out into the world with the thought that there are heroisms all around him, and with the desire all alive in his heart to follow any which may come within sight of him, that he breaks away as I do from the life he knows, and ventures forth into the wonderful mystic twilight land where lie the great adventures and the great rewards. Behold me, then, at the office of the Daily Gazette, on the staff of which I was a most insignificant unit, with the settled determination that very night, if possible, to find the quest which should be worthy of my Gladys. Was it hardness? Was it selfishness? That she should ask me to risk my life for her own glorification? Such thoughts may come to middle age, but never to ardent three and twenty in the fever of his first love. Chapter 2 Try Your Luck with Professor Challenger I always liked McArdle, the crabbed, old, round-backed, red-headed news editor, but I rather hoped that he liked me. Of course, Beaumont was the real boss, but he lived in the rarefied atmosphere of some Olympian height which he could distinguish nothing smaller than an international crisis or a split in the cabinet. Sometimes we saw him passing in lonely majesty to his inner sanctum, with his eyes staring vaguely and his mind hovering over the Balkans or the Persian Gulf. He was above and beyond us, but McArdle was his first lieutenant, and it was he that we knew. The old man nodded as I entered the room, and he pushed his spectacles far up on his bald forehead 
Well, Mr. Malone, from all I hear, you seem to be doing very well, said he in his kindly Scotch accent. I thanked him. The colliery explosion was excellent. So was the Southwark fire. You have the true descriptive touch. What do you want to see me about? To ask a favor. He looked alarmed, and his eyes shone mine. Ta-ta, what is it? Do you think, sir, that you could possibly send me on some mission for the paper? I would do my best to put it through and get you some good copy. What sort of mission do you have in your mind, Mr. Malone? Well, sir, anything that had adventure and danger in it, I really would do my very best. The more difficult it was, the better it would suit me. You seem very anxious to lose your life. To justify my life, sir. Dear me, Mr. Malone, this is very, very exalted. I'm afraid the day for this sort of thing is rather past. The expense of the special mission business hardly justifies the result. And of course, in any case, there would only be an experienced man with a name that would command public confidence who would get such an order. The big blank spaces in the map are all being filled in and there's no room for romance anywhere. Wait a bit, though, he added, with a sudden smile upon his face. Talking of the blank spaces of the map gives me an idea. What about exposing a fraud, a modern Munchausen, and making him ridiculous? You could show him up as the liar that he is. Hey, man, it would be fine. How does it appeal to you? Anything. Anywhere. I care nothing. McArdle was plunged in thought for some minutes. I wonder whether you could get on friendly, or at least on talking terms with the fellow, he said at last. You seem to have a sort of genius for establishing relations with people. Sympathy, I suppose, or animal magnetism or youthful vitality, or something. I am conscious of it myself. You are very good, sir. So why should you not try your luck with Professor Challenger of Enmore Park? I dare say I looked a little startled. Challenger, I cried. Professor Challenger, the famous zoologist. Wasn't he the man who broke the skull of Blundell of the Telegraph? The news editor smiled grimly. Do you mind? Didn't you say it was adventures you were after? It is all in the way of business, sir, I answered. Exactly. I don't suppose he can always be so violent as that. I'm thinking that Blundell got him at the wrong moment, maybe or in the wrong fashion. You may have better luck, or more tact in handling him. There's something in your line there, I am sure, and the Gazette should work on it. I really know nothing about him, said I, 
I only remember his name in connection with the police court proceedings for striking Blundell. I have a few notes for your guidance, Mr. Malone. I've had my eye on the professor for some little time. He took a paper from a drawer. Here's a summary of his record. I give it to you briefly. Challenger, George Edward. Born, Lars, N.B., 1863. Education, Largs Academy, Edinburgh University. British Museum Assistant, 1892. Assistant Keeper of Comparative Anthropology Department, 1893. Resigned after acrimonious correspondence same year. Winner of Creston Medal for Zoological Research. Foreign member of, well, quite a lot of things. About two inches of small type. Society Belge, American Academy of Sciences, La Plata, etc., etc. Ex-President, Paleontological Society, Section H, British Association, so on, so on. Publications. Some observation upon a series of Kalmyk skulls. Outlines of vertebrae evolution. And numerous papers, including the underlying fallacy of Weissmanism which caused heated discussion at the Zoological Congress of Vienna. Recreations. Walking, alpine climbing. Address, Anmore Park, Kensington. There, take it with you. I have nothing more for you tonight. I pocketed the slip of paper. One moment, sir, I said, as I realized that it was a pink bald head and not a red face which was fronting me. I am not very clear in why I am to interview this gentleman. What has he done? The face flashed back again. Went to South America on a solitary expedition two years ago. Came back last year. Had undoubtedly been to South America, but refused to say exactly where. Began to tell his adventures in a vague way but somebody started to pick holes and he just shut up like an oyster. Something wonderful happened or the man's a champion liar, which is the more probable supposition. Had some damaged photographs said to be fakes. Got so touchy that he assaults anyone who asks questions and he is reporters down the stairs. In my opinion, He's just a homicidal megalomaniac with a turn for science. That's your man, Mr. Malone. Now, off you run and see what you can make of him. You're big enough to look after yourself. Anyway, you're all safe. Employer's Liability Act, you know. A grinning red face turned once more into a pink oval, fringed with gingery fluff. The interview was at an end. I walked across to the club, but instead of turning into him, I leaned upon the railings of the Adelphi Terrace and gazed thoughtfully for a long time at the brown, oily river. I can always think most sanely and clearly in the open air. I took out the list of Professor Challenger's exploits, 
and I read it over under the electric lamp. Then I had what I can only regard as an inspiration. As a pressman, I felt sure from what I had been told that I could never hope to get in touch with this cantankerous professor. But these recriminations, twice mentioned in his skeleton biography, could only mean that he was a fanatic in science. Was there not an exposed margin there upon which he might be accessible? I would try. I entered the club. It was just after eleven, and the big room was fairly full, though the rush had not yet set in. I noticed a tall, thin, angular man seated in an armchair by the fire. He turned as I drew my chair up to him. It was the man of all others whom I should have chosen. Tarp Henry, of the Staff of Nature, a thin, dry, leathery creature who was full, to those who knew him, of kindly humanity. I plunged instantly into my subject. What do you know about Professor Challenger? Challenger? He gathered his brows in scientific disapproval. Challenger was the man who came with the same cock-and-bull story from South America. What story? Oh, it was this rank nonsense about some queer animals he had discovered. I believe he has retracted since. Anyhow, he has suppressed it all. He gave an interview to Reuters, and there was such a howl that he saw it wouldn't do. It was a discreditable business. There were one or two folk who were inclined to take him seriously, but he soon choked them off. How? Well, by his insufferable rudeness and impossible behavior. There was poor old Wadley of the Zoological Institute. Wadley sent a message. The president of the Zoological Institute presents his compliments to Professor Challenger and would take it as a personal favor if he would do them the honor to come to their next meeting. The answer was unprintable. You don't say. Well, a bewildered version of it would run. Professor Challenger presents his compliments to the president of the Zoological Institute and would take it as a personal favor if he would go to the devil. Good Lord. Yes, I expect that's what old Wadley said. I remember his wail at the meeting, which began, In fifty years' experience of scientific intercourse, it quite broke the old man up. Anything more about Challenger? Well, I'm a bacteriologist, you know. I live in a 900 diameter microscope. I can hardly claim to take serious notice of anything that I can see with my naked eye. I'm a frontiersman from the extreme edge of the knowable, and I feel quite out of place when I leave my study and come into touch with all you great, rough, hulking creatures. I'm too detached to talk scandal, and yet at scientific conversations, I have heard something of Challenger, for he is one of those men whom nobody can ignore. He's as clever as they make him, a full-charged battery of force and vitality, but a quarrelsome, 
ill-conditioned fattest, and scrupulous at that. He had gone the length of faking some photographs over the South American business. You say he is a fattest. What is a particular fat? He has a thousand, but the latest is something about Weissman and evolution. It a fearful row about in Vienna, I believe. Can't you tell me the point? Not at the moment, but a translation of the proceedings exists. We have it filed at the office. Would you care to come? That's just what I want. I have to interview the fellow, and I need some lead up to him. It's really awfully good of you to give me a lift. I'll go with you now, if it is not too late. Half an hour later, I was seated in the newspaper office with the huge tome in front of me, which had been opened to the article, Weissman versus Darwin, with the subheading, Spirited Protest at Vienna, Lively Proceedings. My scientific education, having been somewhat neglected, I was unable to follow the whole argument. But it was evident that the English professor had handled his subject in a very aggressive fashion and had thoroughly annoyed his continental colleagues. Protests, uproar, and general appeal to the chairman were three of the first brackets which caught my eye. Most of the matter might have been written in Chinese for any definite meaning that it conveyed to my brain. I wish you could translate it into English for me, I said pathetically to my helpmate. Well, it is a translation. Then I better try my luck with the original. It is certainly rather deep for a layman. If I could only get a single good meaty sentence which seemed to convey some sort of definite human idea, it would serve my turn. Ah yes, this one will do. I seem in a vague way almost to understand it. I'll copy it out. This shall be my link with the terrible professor. Nothing else I can do? Well, yes. I suppose to write to him. If I could frame the letter here and use your address, it would give atmosphere. We'll have the fellow around here making a row and breaking the furniture. No, no. You'll see the letter. Nothing contentious, I assure you. Well, that's my chair and desk. You'll find paper there. I'd like to censor it before it goes. It took some doing, but I flatter myself that it wasn't such a bad job when it was finished. I read it aloud to the critical bacteriologist with some pride in my handiwork. Dear Professor Challenger, it said, As a humble student of nature, I have always taken the most profound interest in your speculations as to the differences between Darwin and Weissman. I have recently had occasion to refresh my memory by rereading. You infernal liar, murmured Tarp Henry, by rereading your masterly address at Vienna. That lucid and admirable statement seems to be the last word in the matter. There is one sentence in it, however, 
namely, I protest strongly against the insufferable and entirely dogmatic assertion that each separate id is a microcosm possessed of a historical architecture elaborated slowly through the series of generations. Have you no desire, in view of later research, to modify this statement? Do you not think that it is over-accentuated? With your permission, I would ask the favor of an interview, as I feel strongly upon the subject and have certain suggestions which I could only elaborate in a personal conversation. With your consent, I trust to have the honor of calling at 11 o'clock the day after tomorrow, Wednesday morning. I remain, sir, with assurances of profound respect. Yours very truly, Edward D. Malone. How's that? I asked triumphantly. Well, if your conscience can stand it, it has never failed me yet. But what do you mean to do? To get there. Once I am in his room, I may see some opening. I may even go to the length of open confession. If he is a sportsman, he will be tickled. Tickled indeed. He's much more likely to do the tickling. Chain mail or an American football suit. That's what you'll want. Well, goodbye. I'll have the answer for you here on Wednesday morning, if he ever deigns to answer you. He is a violent, dangerous, cantankerous character, hated by everyone who comes across him, and the butt of the students, so far as they dare take a liberty with him. Perhaps it would be best for you if you never heard from the fellow at all. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.